What's very near and dear to our heart? Food. That's not bad. Shopping, that's pretty good. Family, children. No, that doesn't count. The nearest and dearest to our hearts, of course, is the Yetzir Horror. There's nothing closer to us than that. The original sin. The truth is, it's impossible to really do justice to this Parsha, to the Bereshis, to the story of Genesis. Let's just briefly summarize for those that want to hear it, what exactly happens in the Parsha. Basically, it talks about the creation of the world. Creation of the world starting with where Hashem creates heaven and earth. It goes through the six days of creation, the whole process of the origin of life from light and dark to the sky, the earth, the waters, as the earth develops life, first with plant life and vegetation, then animal life. Finally, the pinnacle of creation, of course, was man, the creation of man and the creation of woman. I guess she's even the, the crown of the crown, but she was created afterwards. And then, of course, man and woman were placed in the Garden of Eden. They were placed in the Garden of Eden and they were told not to eat from a certain tree. Ray wants to know why were they told not to eat from the tree. There are Rishonim that say that the answer to that is because. Because. In other words, there was no other reason at all other than the fact that Hashem told them not to do it. You have to realize you are not the master of everything. Hashem tells you, I place you in the garden. You can eat from every single thing that you see in front of you. From one thing, you have to realize that you're not the master of the universe. And in fact, if we now examine, based on your question, we can understand a little bit what the serpent, who of course represents the Yetzirah, he's played by, the Yetzirah is played by the serpent, what he tells the, what he tells Adam and Chava, what does he tell them? He tells them that, um, the Nochosh tells them the following, Hashem knows the day that you eat from it your eyes will open up and you will be as God you will know good and evil in other words he's saying you become God like if you eat from it a simple explanation of what this is all about is simply that who is the master of the universe who is the master of man and of his own could he do the dictates of his heart or is there something that he has to realize that there are some things that are beyond his boundaries that he should not touch. So therefore, Hashem tells him, refrain, refrain from this tree. Why? Because I created the world, I know what's better for you. And you have to take something on faith. Adam didn't question why or what. The truth of the matter is God created the universe. He tells man, you are free to do everything that you want. And I created everything that's good for you. But there's one thing for, I have my reasons for whatever they are you cannot eat from. Comes the serpent and the Yetzirah comes and says, no, you are the master. Eat from it and you will be as God. You will be God-like creatures, namely you're the master of everything. And therefore, when they ate from it, they became the master, but evil entered them. This is the idea of where man starts worshiping himself, where he wants to do whatever he wants. And this is really, perhaps, the simplest level of explanation of what the tree is all about. The good and evil of the tree was not inherent in the tree before the command of God. The command of God made it good and evil. Mankind, as the Rambam says, even before they ate from the tree, knew the difference between truth and falsehood. 
but the subjectiveness of good and evil, which is a relativistic term, when we when we change the um, when we change the um, outlook on life from true and false to good and evil, where it becomes subjective, that's what happened after they ate from this. So in other words, God basically tells man, you have to hold back. You have to hold back from something. And if you don't listen to that, if you consider yourself to be in place of God, that you make your own decisions, then that's really the beginning of the downfall of man. Because it leaves nothing with, there's no boundaries. Okay, but before we get to that, let's... Didn't they have free will in That's another good question. A question that's asked is that the implication from this story is that free will entered into the picture after after they ate from the tree. When it would seem to us that free will is really what mankind is all about. The difference between man and beast is the difference between knowledge of good and evil, free will, intelligence, and, and, uh, and the knowledge of uh, or doing things based on instinct. Seemingly, man, before he ate from the tree, says that he was naked, and it didn't bother him. He had no shame. He was like the animals. So what Ray is in effect asking is that it would come out that man, before he ate from the tree, was like a beast, or he was naked. He, nothing bothered him. It says that he would um, copulate in public in front of all the animals, which is why the snake got a little jealous. But in any case, it seems that he had no shame. He had no busha, he had no shame. And as a result of that, he had no knowledge of good and evil. He lacked this element of free will, which is what mankind is all about. It would seem that after he ate from the tree is when the Yetzirah and when free will entered into the picture and he became smarter. It seems that he did become smarter. So then the question is, isn't that the purpose of mankind? Why did God tell him not to eat from the tree if, if anything, he elevated himself by eating from the tree rather than degenerated? He ate from the tree. Wasn't the Sahara, whatever you call it, already there? Mm-hmm. Now you ask another good question. On the other hand, we now have another question. No, she's asking a good question in reverse. If eating from the tree is what brought the eight Sahara, so then how could Adam violate the command in advance? Did he, it would seem from that that he had free will. Somebody have an answer? Anybody have an answer to that? That's a good question. You hear what the question is? It's a paradox. Nope. Someone could think of an answer to that. So, so what happened? Let's briefly finish the story. What happened was that man in his pristine state was uh, seemingly all good, but he was naked and it didn't bother him. After he ate from the tree, his eyes opened up, he became embarrassed, he put on fig leaves, and he was banished from the Garden of Eden, and he was punished with the fact that he had to now work for a living. He put on fig leaves, he had to the... Uh, yeah, the story of the fig leaves was after he sinned. No, no, when he left Gan Eden, he put on, he, Hashem made for him clothing of, of skins. What, what, what gave him the shame after he ate from the What gave him the shame? Well... No. The truth is, one could say in a symbolic sense that when the Rashi brings down from the Medrash that man was commanded with one command. I once mentioned the story of David HaMelech. I don't know if I ever told you um, how David HaMelech went into a, a bathhouse to take a bath and all of a sudden he felt uncomfortable because he was naked and he found himself naked from all the mitzvahs. 
he wasn't normally surrounded by mitzvahs. He's wearing tzitzis, he was wearing tefillin, his palace, he's living in a house with a mezuzah. He was surrounded by mitzvahs. You go, in, you go into, a, into a bathhouse, there's no mezuzah on the door, you're not wearing your tzitzis, your tefillin, nothing. You're naked. You're naked from all mitzvahs. Then David Melch remembered that he had a bris mila, so that consoled him. The fact that he had a bris mila consoled him, that he had some mitzvah that was always with him. Based on that story, one can understand a little bit what this feeling of nakedness was. Hashem commands Adam with a mitzvah. I am giving you an injunction. This is your mitzvah. Guard yourself. Don't eat from the tree. If you keep the command, you are fulfilling the will of God. You have a mitzvah. You're clothed with a mitzvah. As soon as he violates that, he was stripped of any kind of, of divine garment, of divine light that he would have normally had. Just as Dabda Melch felt uncomfortable in the bathhouse when he was naked from all the mitzvahs, until he remembered that he still had a mitzvah. Adam Arishan, who was given one command, now feels himself that he has no mitzvahs. Why? Because he was given one command. And, uh, and he violates that command. He's now stripped naked of any possible mitzvah that he had. Um, of course, now there's a good question on what I just said also. Mm-hmm. He was naked of all mitzvahs. He was only given one command to eat, not eat from the tree. Of course, Eddie's now going to ask me a kasha. Puru. He still had a mitzvah. Yeah. So have children. children. That was the first command given to all of them. Even before <coughs> he ate from the etadah, even before he was commanded not to eat from the etadah, he was given the command have children. So he still had a mitzvah. So this explanation of Rashi requires further elaboration. But we're left with a number of questions over here so far. First of all, what was his state beforehand where seemingly did he have Yetzirah or didn't he have Yetzirah? Seemingly he had Yetzirah, but then from the Pesach it sounds like he didn't have Yetzirah. And if that's the case, then then, then isn't that In any case, getting back, let's talk about the Yetzirah a little bit. So what was the Yetzirah before and after? This is an interesting Gemara. The Gemara in Sukkah says the following. I didn't bother recording that on the sheet. You'll take my word that it's here. The Gemara says that in the future, when Mashiach comes, Hashem is going to sacrifice, so to speak, destroy the evil inclination, the Yetzirah, and the tzaddikim, the righteous people, and the rishonim are going to see the Yetzirah in its state of, uh, of, you know, destruction. And it says over there, Lost at level, Meviyah Kodesh Baruch the Yetzirah. Hashem will bring the Yetzirah. Not this one. V'shochtah b'fnei ha-tzaddikim. He will destroy it. He will shecht it in front of the tzaddikim with neir shoyim. Tzaddikim nidmelohem kahar gavora. The tzaddikim will look at the Yetzirah, and to them it will look like a huge mountain. In other words, after the you know when the Yetzirah is, is is slaughtered finally, and people have a chance to draw back and externalize it again and look at the Yetzirah, what it is in its true essence, Sadiqim, the righteous people are going to look at the Yetzirah and it's going to look like to them like a tremendous mountain. Rishon, the evil people, the wicked people are going to look at the Yetzirah and it's going to look like them, Nidmelohem Kachut Hasara. It'll look to them like a, a strand, 
a strand of hair, and it was very thin, very small. Halolu bochum v'halolu bochum. Both are going to start crying. Tzadikim will cry and the Rishon will cry. Tzadikim bochum v'omrim heich yicholnu l'chvosh ha'gvol kezeh. Tzadikim will cry and say, how are we able to conquer such a huge mountain? Rishon bochum v'omrim, the Rishon are going to cry as well, and they'll say, heich lo yicholnu l'chvosh ha'zchut ha'sara ha'zeh. How come we weren't able to conquer an evil inclination that's that, that's thin like a uh, hair. So, that's the Gemara. The question, of course, is, so which one is it? Is the Yetzirah a mountain, or is the Yetzirah thin like a hair? Well, the truth of the matter is, I'll tell you, I understood this a little bit <coughs> when I was, um, <laughs> no, not what you're going to think. When I was in, in uh, the Yucatan Peninsula, where a place, Chichen Itza, there's this huge pyramid over there. Not like the one over there, pyramids made by, by the Mayans. And you climb up on this, on this pyramid, and all of a sudden you get to the top and you look down. There's no way in the world that I could get down again. It is steep like crazy. And my wife said, there must be an elevator here because she is not going down without an elevator. <laughs> Problem is that the Mayans did not make any elevators and you have no way of going down but to get down. So what is it? As you're climbing up, you do not notice what you're climbing. It's step by step, right? You go up one step, okay, it's step, another step. All of a sudden you look, you look down and you look at the whole picture and it's extremely steep. So the truth of the matter is, it's one step at a time. Once the tzaddik can get to the high mountain, they look down, they go, how do we do it all? The Rishon never got beyond the first step. It's one step, one step you couldn't do. How could that be? That's Posh Pshat in the Gemara. However, the Beis HaLevi, that's the, um, <coughs> by Salvechik in Yeshiva University, his great-grandfather had the same name as him, and he was the Beis HaLevi. He was the first of the, of the Salvechik dynasty. And he says a very profound comment on what this Gemara is trying to say. Which one is it? He says the fact, re- the, the fact is that when a person tries to understand what is the Yetzir Hara, in society, it's basically something which is, it's fluff. A person realizes, generally speaking, that the lust, the desire that you have for something is generally much greater than the actual pleasure that you get once you achieve the object of your desire. In other words, a person thinks that this is the greatest thing in the world and he must have it. After you finally have it, it wasn't, it wasn't that great. Uh, you could look forward to a vacation for five years, and it's wonderful, but the, the, that lusting that you have for it is not there. The truth of the matter is, you can understand this, I mean, the other, when I was in Detroit, Benaz Manon, uh, Benaz Manon, whatever, circus, still used to being in Lakewood, and um, I was reading about, um, about crack, and, and, and it's, it's mind-boggling. But one of the truths that they have about crack is that the first rush that you have is the greatest, most pleasurable rush that you could possibly have. It is something out of this world. From then on, you go through your whole life what's known in slang as chasing the ghost. You never get back to that high. And they, that's why they keep taking more and more. You're chasing after that ghost. But it's elusive like a ghost, and you never get back to it. And you will kill yourself for it, but you never get that. That's the, I mean, don't look at me like, you know, 
speak to the people that smoke this stuff. Well, that's I heard that. chasing the dragon, chasing the ghost. There's a couple of expressions that they use for it. So what is it? You chase the ghost. And that's really what life is. You keep thinking, you know, I'm missing something. There's something that I'm missing. You know, the people, whether, whether it's drugs or whether it's even food or something like that, you lost, you think something is going to be so, so gewaltig until you get there. I mean, I know I find it to be true mainly when you walk into a place where they're making freshly popped popcorn. The smell could kill you. If someone tells you that popcorn is trade, that bowl of popcorn, for the next two hours you can go crazy dying for that popcorn. But if someone says it's kosher and you can eat it and you take a handful, that it's nothing. It does not taste like anything. I mean, yeah, it's fine. But it's not anything like what, your, what that smell was, what that desire was for. Or another example, cotton candy. I mean, if you, a person is blind, and you take cotton candy and you put it in your mouth, it dissolves right away to two or three grains of sugar. So what is it? It's fluffed up to look beautiful. And it, you know, before you see it, the kids see it, they go crazy for it. They must have that cotton candy. It looks beautiful, and it looks like it's tremendous. Then you get to the object of your desire, and it shrivels up into a couple of grains of sugar. That's the eight of heart with everything in the world. Everything in the world basically works the same way. Your desire and your lust after it is so tremendous. You're chasing the ghost. When you get there, you feel you didn't get so much for it. So, you know, you, 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 you take lust after money, for example. There's no question that a person will, um, will spend thousands and millions of dollars to regain his health. If you know, there's something constantly wrong with someone, you'll spend whatever money it is to regain your health. Even cosmetic surgery, I mean, people, if, you, if a person could just get rid of a few wrinkles or make himself look beautiful, herself look beautiful, whatever, you'll spend a lot of money for it. On the other hand, a person that is already beautiful and doesn't have the money, they don't consider their beauty to be anything. They want the money, they need it. And it's always the money that they don't have that's going to give them the pleasure. They'll spend much of their life chasing after the money. When they finally achieve that money, they don't feel the satisfaction. They figure, well, it must be the next 10 million. I made my first million, and I thought that was going to give me the pleasure. Obviously, it's not there. So the pleasure must be in the next 10 million. And when you didn't get it, it must be, well, it must be when you get 100 million that you get the pleasure. It's always in the next money that's there. The money that you have, you do not feel that satisfaction from. And you're willing to spend the money that you have for your health. But you're willing to kill your health for the money that you don't have. Right? <laughs> you're willing to spend all the money you have to regain health that you don't have. But you're willing to destroy all your health to get money that you haven't achieved yet. But you always think it's there. You're chasing the ghost. And you go through life chasing the ghost. Wow, I don't know. It just hit me over there. Well, since this is the day after Halloween, I think we should... Also known as what day today? Oh, oh. Also in the street parking the truth is, the Halloween relates very well to what we're talking about. Because the eight Sahara is exactly trick or treat. It starts off thinking it's a treat and it, it tricks you. The eight Sahara tricks you. And, and that's really what, what the whole Yetzirah is about. Life, the lust that we have, is about the idea that, that you feel this tremendous urge and this need to get something, and you think that it's all going to be there when you get to it. And when you get to it, it, it fizzles into a few little, you know, molecules of cotton candy, of, of sugar. I mean, I, I, I'm just telling you, 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 you watch a commercial on television, and they tell the kids, 
you must buy Ghostbuster cereal. Ghostbuster cereal. Why? Because it's the only cereal box that glows in the dark. They don't say anything about the cereal. This is the only cereal box that glows in the dark. I never would have thought of a need for such a thing. And it could drive the kids crazy that you must have this cereal box. It, it invents a need that wasn't there. All of a sudden, a new need, a new urge. And believe me, after the kids get that cereal and they turn off the lights and they see it glow in the dark, that they turn on the television and they look for another commercial to tell them something else that they need and without it, they're, they're nothing. Right? You look for something else. You get that, you, that's the Yetzir Horror. The Yetzir Horror has a way of making something so appealing that, the, that it's not on the same level as the actual pleasure that you get. Says the Beis HaLevi. So what was Odomarishan before the sin? Yes, he had free will. The difference is that his free will, and he looked at things in an objective state where the pleasure fit the Yetzir Horror. He had a lust and a desire to do things based on what it really was. The Nachash, let's examine some of the words that the Nachash said, and we can see some of this. And, uh, let, 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 let's go through the Pesukim. Um, let's start from the from one. The snake was more cunning and sly than all the other beasts of the field. Asher also Hashem Elohim, that God made. And he said to the woman, now it's very interesting how the eight Sahar starts things off. And, th and this is another way, I mean, if you learn this passion, you examine each Pasuk, you will see so many things of how the eight Sahar appeals to a person. What did God tell uh, Adam? God makes the following statement to him. God says, oh, I'll just read, you don't have to bother looking for it. He says, you know, I'm going to give you, I'm putting you into a Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. And I'm giving you all the trees. And I'm telling you that you're allowed to eat. Um, let's see, where is it? I put it over here. Yeah, Vaitzavas. It says, Mikol Eitzhagon Ochol Tochel. From every single tree in the garden, you can eat, you shall surely eat. Ochol Tochel is like an emphasis that a person can surely eat from it and enjoy yourself. From one tree, don't eat, because the day that you eat from it, you will die. That's what Hashem told him. Comes the Nachosh. And this is the first instance of the Goebbels' big lie. Yeah. Comes, and, and, and this, Chazal already pointed this out thousands of years ago, that if you say a big lie, you'll be effective because the whole thing won't enter, but part of it will. The whole lie will not enter, but it'll make an impression. So that's, that's Goebbels' big lie theory. So what does the Nochus say over here? So the Nochah says, He says to the woman, Didn't I hear God say something to the effect that you're not allowed to eat from any of the trees? Because he right away starts saying, Hey, you can't eat from anything, right? Isn't that true? So, he, that, that's why the Nochah right away starts off. You can't eat from anything. So she already starts watering down a little bit. Instead of saying, No, God said we could eat from every tree and it's wonderful. She just says a very simple statement. pre Yeah, we, we could eat. But already no longer does it have the same, you know, God tried making it sound, listen, you can eat from every single tree. One tree is very dangerous, don't eat from it. But everything else you could eat. You, you can't eat from anything, right? So she says, we could eat. Like in a very simple, subdued statement. Then take a look at the next Pesach. Self-gratitude, in other words. 
Yeah, but also like she's already like somewhat watering down the the pleasure of what Hashem said is permissible. Then she adds uh, the following: but from the tree that Hashem said that we're now to eat, we can't eat and we can't even touch it. In other words, she starts playing up the thing that you can't have as being something well, oh, we can't even touch it. You know, we can't even come near it. God just said you're not eating from it; it's dangerous. He didn't say nothing about touching it. He says we can't eat it and we can't touch from it. Like, isn't that terrible? The, yeah, that's that, another lesson. These are all proper lessons. But again, let's look at the psychology of what's occurring over here. The Nacha starts off trying to blow up the what God said is forbidden and making it terrible and what's permitted as being, you know, very minor. And she's starting to fall for it. She's already downplaying the permissible and overplaying the forbidden. And then in terms of the ramifications of what happens if you eat, she makes a very crucial error. God said, the day that you will eat from it, you will surely die. She said, ten tamusim, because we might die. In other words, who says we'll really be punished? In other words, you already see the effect of the serpent's, his injection of evil. Ten tamusim, don't, God said, we, we can't eat it or touch it because we might die. So therefore, now the Nochash is able to come back already very easily. And as Rashi says, he pushed the woman into the tree, and she saw that she denied, right, which she wouldn't have. So now the Nochash already found his, 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 his way in. He said, you're not going to die. And now already he goes even a step further. Not only will you not die, namely that the punishment that God said is going to happen is untrue, but even God's motivation is suspect. God's motivation wasn't for your good because it's bad for you. It's because he does, for whatever reason, he had ulterior motives. You start already saying, you start with the Torah, well, if you eat ham, nothing's going to happen to you. And all those people that said not to eat ham, the rabbis, they said it because of this reason, that reason, and you start ascribing ulterior motives to what they did. That's already the next step. But you see how already it goes a progression. Well, I don't know if we are sure or not, but again, if you want to understand it allegorically, when I say allegorically, I don't mean that it didn't happen. I mean that we don't have to relate to Adam and Eve as a human being that we are familiar with. The concept over here, and this is a true concept about humanity in general. Let's keep it at that instead of trying to understand the, the people themselves. Instead of analyzing the psychology of Adam and Eve themselves, let's understand Adam. The word Adam means all the man, as he's prototype man. And Eve is Aim Kochai, she's prototype woman. Let's understand them as prototypes rather than as beings that we have to analyze their psychology. So therefore what happens? The snake comes in with a big lie. The woman right away falls for part of it because makes the permissible not as important, downplays it, and makes the forbidden into something fantastic, uh, into something that's, you know, terribly, you know, strict. Then Enoch says, no, it's not true, you're not going to be punished because she already made the statement that maybe we'll be punished. And then he says that he, now the Nochash comes and he ascribes ulterior motives to God. That the day that you eat from it, your eyes are going to open up and you will now become masters and you'll be godlike. And God doesn't want that. So God has an ulterior motive over here. That's already where the Nochash comes in. Once already she heard all that, she now looks at the tree with a different vision. Look how the Torah elaborates on this passage. The woman saw he told that the tree is good, it looks good to eat. The and it is very desirable 
for the eyes. The nechmotoit, and it is extremely pleasurable. In other words, all of a sudden is where we have this buildup. Till now we had taiva, we had yetsahara, we had the inclination as being level, was a level playing field. Pleasure and the lust for pleasure were equal. Now all of a sudden everything became a buildup. Now this, this, this tree looks like something, something that I must have. She looks at it and she sees it's desirable and she lusts after it. And now this becomes her all-encompassing obsession. And that's really what the Yetzirah is. The Yetzirah is... What is the Yetzirah, ultimately? The Yetzirah, as we, are, we know it, is obsession. It's how a person desires something, can't have it, and then becomes obsessed with the need to get it. And you look at this post, this is the first time obsession sets in. The woman looks at it, Tovo eight l'machol, Taivo eight, she must have it. She becomes obsessed with it, and everything else now loses its meaning. All the other trees, all the other trees lose its meaning. And she must have this tree, and she eats from it. Then the Yetzirah enters into them, and becomes part of them, and from then on, we now have this Yetzirah, where to the Tzaddikim, it becomes a great mountain. Why? Because that's what the Yetzirah is. You're obsessed, you need it. And the Tzaddik that has to conquer the Yetzirah, after when Mashiach comes, he looks at it, my God, how did I conquer this great obsession? The Russia who gave in to his Yetzirah, who constantly gave in, he looks at it, what did I really get? There was nothing. I ran to that Viennese table because it looked, I mean, you know what a Viennese table looks like. They build it up, it looks tremendous. But it's only one form of sugar after another. That's all it is. It's yellow sugar and brown sugar and red sugar. I mean, it's just cream. And the cream tastes like cream, like cream. Again, one after the other. You go down the line, that cake looks great. You eat it. wasn't as good as I thought it was. You try this cake. It's still not, ooh, this one isn't bad. This one's a little bit better, right? That one is. You sample every single one, and you got to have it all. But it's, it's nothing. It's chut hasara. That's what the Yetzirah is. But ultimately, it's that. All the Mauritian before the sin had the Yetzirah, but it was on a corresponding level. Afterwards, it became this, this multifaceted obsession where you're driven, you're driven that you must have it. And after you get it, after you attain it, you realize that there's nothing really there. And that's what the whole Olam Hazah is. So therefore, after they ate from the tree, now, so after we already understand what the Eight Sahara is, we could therefore now see a little bit what we're dealing with when we're talking about being naked and not being naked. Animals aren't na- are naked and doesn't bother them. Why? Again, because basically their Yetzirah, their urge for copulation is on the same measure as the actual need and the pleasure involved. In other words, basically they, they, have, a, they have a need, the need produces a pleasure, and they copulate and then they go off and do whatever else uh, you know, life is all about. It's, it's on the same level as they're at. Human beings, on the other hand, all of a sudden went out of sync. Beforehand, everything was a level playing field. Their needs, their urges, their biological urges, and everything else was based on the way it should be. The Sephora says that before they ate from the Eitz Hadas, their genitals were like their noses and mouths and everything else. There's no reason why you cover up your mouth and you, and you use your mouth to eat. It's anything else, all the organs of their body. was all equal. It was like any other human bodily need and and they and it was all equal and therefore they were able to not feel any kind of embarrassment. Afterwards, all of a sudden they saw that there was this 
there was this build up, this fluff. The, the power of imagination came into play. The imaginative faculties came in and it started getting built up in their minds. The pleasures became and the desire and the lust became a lot greater than the need. And as a result of that, they now felt an embarrassment because they were no longer on the level, they were spiritual beings. And here they found the Yetzirah, they found the Taiva, they found an urge that was no longer on the level that they were on the level playing field. It was way below them. They felt embarrassed, they had to cover themselves up. But I'll tell you something I heard from Rav Baruch Sirotskin in the name of his father, my Rosh Hashiva. But afterwards, I think the Malbim says practically the same thing. This is an interesting idea. What was man's essence before he ate from the, from the Eitz Hadas? And the truth is, it's very similar to what we've discussed, but it puts it in a better light. Adam was created, he was a composite creature. He was made with a soul, and he was placed in a body. He was made from the upper world and the lower worlds. We don't have time to go through it, but if you look at the Psukim, you find there are two stories of the creation of man. In one place it talks about how God made him in his image. Bor also, he made him in his image. Then in the other place it says, He formed him out of the dust of the earth. Man basically is made from the dust of the earth as an animal. There's an animal part of man. But Hashem injected into him on the Shama, a Bria, and that was a, a special <coughs> creation. The Tselem Elohim, the image of God. And the human being is basically made up of this, of this composition where part of him draws him to earthliness and part of him to spirituality. Now the human being in his perfect form, when he was a soul, when the true essence of the human being was a soul, his body was a utensil. His body was the clothing of his soul. That's what his body was. The body functions as the clothing of the soul. Namely, you're a soul. That's what your true essence is. Nowadays also we have a similar um, philosophical idea. Is man a body or a mind? What are you? What is your true essence? Do you consider yourself to be a mind enveloped in the body? Or is your body yourself that you just happen to have a mind? It's the same kind of an idea. The human being before Adam when he was created was a soul. He was a spiritual substance clothed in the body. He wasn't naked. <coughs> his body was his clothing. His body clothed his soul. Now he ate from the Eitz Hadas and he became one with his body. Now the essence of man became his body. His body was now naked. Beforehand he was a soul that was enveloped and encompassed, encased in the clothing of a body. And he didn't feel shame from his body because he knew, I am a soul. He looked at Chava, she was a soul. I am a soul, you are a soul. We utilize our bodies for whatever the needs are. Our bodies are here to be utilized as utensils and we use them, utilize them properly. There's nothing to be ashamed of. We're on a level playing field. Everything is the way it should be. It's in harmony. Our Yetzirah our is in harmony with our essence. And therefore, there's nothing to be ashamed of. The same way that animals in a sense aren't ashamed. Humans in their sense were also not ashamed because we are in our true essence souls, neshamas, that we have clothings of bodies. And our bodies, nothing to be ashamed of. But after they found that they sank down to the level of where their essence now became bodies. And that's what they were. Their bodies were themselves. They felt naked. Their bodies didn't have any clothing. Their bodies no longer were clothed. When you understand that, that you now need a clothing, one can understand how low we have sunk 
nowadays. Whereas Adam before he sinned was a soul that was clothed in the body and his true essence was the body, was the soul. And the body was only an outer garment. Came Adam in his subsequent state and his true essence became his body and now he was naked and needed clothing. We have now reached the point of where we look at a person's essence by their clothing. Not even by their bodies. You look at a person and you see what he's wearing. Oh, that's the person. I mean, you know, what have we become? It's the same thing with the cereal boxes. That, what do you eat? You eat the cereal. The boxing is just the container. You have to have a container in order to, to throw away. What is it? But now already we look at the container and that's it. We don't even look at what's inside of it. That's how low we have sunk to the point of where we look at a human being and we say, this person is, oh, look at his stature, his clothing. Uh, you know, I was reading the other day a, um, from this Jewish journal from Los Angeles. And uh, a woman was over there saying how on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, she's clapping the Al-Khayt, and she likes to look up every once in a while in the middle of the Al-Khayt to look at the way people are dressed and makes her feel good. And here you are in the middle of Yom Kippur where you're supposed to be your spiritual soul and it makes you feel good. Oh, look at the new fashions, new year. It's part of the renewal of, you know, what the fashions are, right? The fashions are a very important part of the Yom Naroim. And you look at a person, oh, that person is good and that person is bad. Based on what? Your clothing? I mean, isn't that ridiculous? It's almost like the Tzemach Tzedek is a very interesting marshal. How there was a there was once a king who had a minister who sinned against him. So he gave him a punishment. He said, from now on, you got to walk around with an iron chain through your nose. So that everybody should... This, that's the story. Don't give me the looks. you got to go with an iron chain through your nose. So you can imagine the embarrassment that this person is walking around with this iron chain through his nose. So the guy lived a long life, and he died, and his children... Was, became a family tradition already. You got to walk. So the next one put on some like silver chains over there through his nose, <laughs> and some put on gold and fashionable things and jewelry. The guy came over and says, "You know, I know what it's all about. I mean, this is not a mark of distinction. It's a mark of embarrassment. The fact that we are wearing clothes where the fig leaves that Adam did to cover himself up. What are you embellishing those fig leaves for?" That's what you're doing, basically. These are fig leaves. These are, these are things that we have to feel embarrassed that we sinned. And that's how we're doing it. Instead, we look at a person, oh, this person, is, uh, his stature in life is because he wears Pierre Cardin, and oh, this person, what is he? I mean, you go through certain societies, and you find that they look at, you know, uh, who's that person? He's only wearing... I mean, that's ridiculous. You're going to make a person's essence based on his clothing? That's where we've reached. You know, I must say, I walked into Riverdale Judaica, and, and I almost laughed. Rabbi Shamshin Rafal Hirsch says that as a reminder to our previous state, Hashem gave us a very interesting mitzvah. And the mitzvah is tzitzis. Tzitzis. What is the mitzvah of tzitzis? We actually put on clothing that have a certain spiritual symbolic significance to it to remind us of the Torah and of what our purpose in life is. In other words, we put on clothing that reminds us of our spiritual state which is just the opposite of what the Yetzirah is, where it externalizes everything and makes everything more and more superficial. So I walk into Riverdale Judaica, and now there's a new thing that if your child doesn't have it, he is going to be lacking something, he's going to make your life miserable. Talos Cotton's tits with Batman logos on them, <laughs> and matching Batman yarmulkes. And you have to be the first kid on your block 
wearing a Batman logo that says on the Batman in Hebrew <laughs> with a Batman yarmulke matching. So this is now already on your tzitzis. It's creating a need that no longer existed. I mean, Rav Shalashnafor explains tzitzis to be a spiritual garment and instead we are now creating a new need, a new Yetzirah, a new external thing that you must have and you'll blow it all up out of proportion. And if you think about society, I must repeat a word that I might have once said, and I don't know if everybody remembers it or not, but it's appropriate over here as well. It says by Esau, I don't know if anybody will recall this, it says that Esau, the brother of Yaakov, he came in over there and he said to, um, to Yaakov, what? Why wouldn't they recall it? Okay. You said it, we're learning it. No, that's also true. Uh, in, interestingly enough, uh, I, well, I'll point out something in a second. Um, it says that, how did he get his name Edom? How did he get his name Edom? Wasn't it? Yeah, but that's not what the Torah says why he was called Edom. The clay was red? The clay? No, he was eating lentils. No, no, he was... Um, Esau was Yaakov's brother. And, and Yaakov was making a pot of lentils. He was making a pot of lentils, Nizid Adoshim, and Esau came back, he was so hungry that he wanted to eat some of those lentils. So he asked Yaakov, you know, I'm so hungry, I'm starting to stuff it into my mouth. Stuff into my mouth some of these lentils because I'm, I'm so hungry. And then it says, For that he was called Edom for his whole life. Edom, by the way, means red. Now the question, of course, is, that's a pretty insignificant reason to call a person Edom for his whole life because he was once so hungry that he wanted to eat lentils. Well, this is Sahara, but I mean, people are entitled to be hungry. Is that why you're going to call him Edom? So call him Bean. Let's call him Nizid Adoshim. <laughs> why do we call him Edom? We oh, call Adama him red. No, because I can't call Edom because of the beans were red. But let's call him Bean. Let's call him Lentil. Hey, Lentil. Call him hungry. <laughs> call him hungry. Why? Call him Turkey. <laughs> why call him Edom? The Sephora says, says a very interesting and uh, enlightenment on this. What did Esau say? Esau didn't come in saying, give me some of those beans. He didn't even know what was in the pot. He took a look at it and he saw the color and the color appealed to him. Give me some of that red stuff. He didn't say give me beans. He said, I don't know what it is. It looks great. Just stuff into me some of that red stuff. I want some of that red stuff. Give me that red stuff. That's what he wanted. The most superficial thing about everything is the color, right? You walk into a showroom and they show you this beautiful Rolls Royce, but if it has a nice brown, dark brown color, that's it. You walk into a, yeah, two-tone, whatever. You look at a Mercedes that's red, a bright red flashy Mercedes. I mean, what is that? It's about a quarter, uh, an eighth of an inch, I don't know how much paint is on it, about an eighth of an inch deep. And it looks great, you want it, and that's why you buy it. The first thing that strikes you, the most superficial thing about anything is color. That's the most superficial thing about anything. An apple, you look at the apple, looks nice, so you eat it. What do you do? You peel off the peel and you throw it away, right? The color happens to be the most insignificant part of it. With the car, it's the most insignificant. It looks good, but it has no function. With an apple or an orange, a beautiful orange, you rip off the peel, you throw away the peel, and you eat the insides. So really, it's the content that counts, and the color is there just to appeal to you. It's, again, this Yates or Hara, right? That's, that's what it is. Edom was... Why was he called Edom? Because that's what Esau was. Esau was so impressed with superficial qualities that when he saw food, he didn't even know what the food was. He wanted the red stuff. We can now understand why we could refer to our Golos as Golos Edom. 
Because again, with all the superficiality, you walk into a store and you will buy one candy bar over another based on its wrapping. If, the, if it has nice gold foil wrapping and another candy bar does not have nice gold foil wrapping, you will buy the one with the gold foil wrapping. Even though you then peel off the wrapping and you throw it away. You have two cans of soda and one is a little bit beaten up or whatever it is or it doesn't, it's not made nice and the other, the Pepsi can or the Coke is a nice high gloss red, white and blue, you will buy that. The point is we are so superficially impressed with things that we now go to the point of externals of where, of where you will buy a cereal for the box rather than for the cereal. You will buy... What? Well, the prize is already a good reason, perhaps. That's already inside of it. But I mean, to actually buy a cereal because of the box? Are you going to buy something because of a box that you discard? You throw it away right away? That's all external influences. That's Edom. That's all Edom. That's goals Edom. It's interesting. It says over here, you know, you know what the Marshal says on that Gemara that I said, that Nidmelon Kahar or Nidmelon Kisar, he says the simon is Harsayer which is the representation of Esau. Esau is the representation of Yetzir Hara, and he's known as Har Seir, the Mount, Mount Seir. So you have two aspects of it, the Har aspect and the Seir, the Sar, Seir comes from Sar. The point is Esau represents external superficial qualities, and that's what the Yetzir Hara is. But it's more than just that it's superficial. It's this blow up and this build up of the superficial to the point of where you feel that if you don't have it, you lust after it tremendously. And that's why there's another expression that we refer to the Yetzirah on Pesach. Chomets, right? What is Chomets? Se'or Shebi'is, it's fermentation. What is that? It's when you don't deal with the essence, you just fluff it up to make it look good. You put a little bit of yeast, yeast doesn't taste good, but it makes the bread, it rises, and makes it look all fluffy. It's like taking sugar you know, grains, and fluffing it up into cotton candy. That's the Yetzir Hara. The Yetzir Hara is fluff. It makes things look appealing, but it's not its true essence. The true essence is something totally different. If the Yetzir Hara would be on the level of the actual pleasure that you derive from something, and you'd be in a level playing field, then, uh, um, it seems that the temperature in the Garden of Eden was... Uh, yeah, because we find that when man made clothing for themselves, they only made fig leaves. That means the purpose of their clothing was to cover up, when, whereas when they left the Garden of Eden, they needed new clothing. Hashem made them garments of skin because they were now going out into the elements and it was going to be a colder and a warm environment. They needed different kinds of clothing. So therefore, there's two purposes to clothing. One is protection from the elements and the environment, and the other as a covering because of the embarrassment. But the embarrassment is due to the sin. And, and that's really what the Yetzirah is. With this we could already understand a little bit some of the questions that we started with. The Yetzirah, yes, there was a certain amount of the Yetzirah in the beginning. However, the Yetzirah as we know it, this obsessive Yetzirah, is what entered with the story of the Garden of Eden when, when she ate and, and Adam ate from the tree and it entered and it internalized inside of them this great lust and obsession. And as a result of that, they sank down to the level of where they now felt an embarrassment to their clothing and uh, to being naked. For whereas in their previous spiritual state, their, their bodies were the clothing of their souls, now that their essence became their bodies, they sank down to a f more physical state. They now needed clothing to cover up their embarrassment and their nakedness.
and we find that the Yetzir Horror is basically this great buildup of desire and loss that people have more above and beyond actual physical pleasure that anything in the physical world could produce. That's the Yetzir Horror. And that's what Edom is all about, as we said earlier. Edom is this superficial qualities that are really not essential, but a person has a great desire for them. And that's why Esau, as the Marshal says in Sukkah, is the, is repre- is the representation of the Yetzirah. And the Yetzirah is known as Har Seir. So we have the two aspects of the Yetzirah, the Har and the Seir. And this is all the superficiality of Edom, where a person has sees things that are basically only superficial and non-essential and nevertheless he lusts after it and he desires it so greatly and so strongly although they themselves have no true true value and no true pleasure is derived from them but it's just this build up and this great lust with this we could understand another aspect to the story of Gan Eden the Gemara says Homon min hator minayin Homon we know is a descendant of Amalek, which is the arch enemy of the Jewish people. The the basic basically Amalek is the epitome of evil and is the progeny of Asov and it and it epitomizes evil. Evil of course is the Yetzirah. So in a sense one can say that Amalek is the epitome of the Yetzirah and Homan is a representation of Amalek. So the Torah says, Homon min hator minayin. So the Gemara says, because of the Pasuk that says, Hamin ho'etz asher tzivisichol vilti yachol menu acholto. Take away the dots. The word Hamin, Hamin ho'etz, the word Hamin is, spells Homon, Homon's name. And of course, Homon was hung on a tree as well, so Homon came, came out to actually be hung on eights. But in any case, so what is this? Is this just a nice play on words where we say Hamin with all the dots is Homon? Or is there a deeper significance to this? For this we have to look a little bit at the story of of Mordechai and Esther and the story of Purim and who Homon was. Who was Homon? Homon was the viceroy, the, the second in command to King Ahasuerosh. Achashverosh was the most powerful king in the most powerful empire at that time. Persia controlled the ancient world. 127 provinces and countries were under his dominion. Achashverosh was the king of the entire known ancient world in those days. Homon was his second in command. Achashverosh, the weak king that he was, gave Homon control over the entire empire. He gave him his ring, he said, do with it whatever you want, and he gave Haman complete control over the empire. So Haman was basically the most powerful individual in the empire. He was cunning and crafty, extremely wealthy, and very powerful. Aside from that, he was extremely haughty, and he was a braggart. We know that he was haughty because he demanded that everybody should bow down to him. Everybody had to bow down to Haman. And everybody did, except, of course, one individual by the name of Mordechai who refused to bow down to Haman. And that greatly troubled and angered 
Haman. But Haman was basically an individual who was wealthy, powerful, rich, haughty, and a braggart. What does it say about Haman? When Haman was at the at the pinnacle of his power and wealth, he had an episode that was sort of like the icing on the cake. And that was that Esther invited him and him alone to a private banquet that she prepared for Achashverosh and herself and Haman. He was invited. He came out. He was very happy. As the Pesach says, He came out of the banquet, the feast, extremely happy. And furthermore, Esther invited him to another banquet. This is a private banquet. So Haman at this point was at the pinnacle of his, of his, of his position in the world. So what does it say? It says, Vayovo Albeso Haman came to his house. Vayishlach Vayove es Oavo Ishto. And he made a, a, a gathering. He gathered together, he sent out invitations, he called together all of his friends and his family, his wife, his friends. He called them all together. For what purpose? For one purpose. To brag to them. To talk about his, his greatness. And the Apostle says, homon as kvod Oshro. Homon then relates to them his kovod, his, his honor and respect. Oshro, his, his great wealth. Firov Bonov, he talks about his kids, his many children. Obviously, there was a certain amount of nepotism there. He must have placed his children in positions of power and prestige, where he places one in the finance ministry, and another one is the governor of this province, and another one is in control of, of that, and another one is a minister of this and that. And he's telling all of his friends and relatives, he calls them together and he starts talking about his wealth and his prestige and his children and his position and their positions. Face Kosher Gidlo HaMelech and all of his glory from the king, how he was, how he's the greatest in the empire. Face Asher Nisso Al Hasorm V'Avdei HaMelech and how he's uplifted above all of the other princes of the realm, how everybody has to bow down to him. And then Homan says, not only this, not only that, but even Esther, the queen, makes a private banquet for Achashverosh. She wants me there as well. She wants me. She wants me again tomorrow. Even Esther's having eyes on me already. Not only do I have power and wealth, prestige, children, even Esther is interested in me. So Haman is now talking about his pinnacle of power and prestige. And then Haman makes a very telling statement. And this, and this Nakuda, this point, points out exactly who Haman was. The Chol Shovali. None of this is worth anything to me. All of this power and prestige that he called together, it's meaningless to me. I have nothing. When I see that, that Mordechai HaYehudi doesn't bow down, as it says, He was in a fit of joy when he came out. When he saw Mordechai 
menu that that Mordechai refused to bow down. He was extremely angry. But not only was he angry, he was angry to the point of where nothing that he had was worth anything to him. He felt no pleasure from anything that he had because the one thing that he didn't have, he now wanted. That turned into an obsession. That built up to the point of where I must have that. And if I don't have that, I have nothing else. Nothing else matters if I don't have the object of my desire. If Mordechai does refuses to humble himself to me, then everything else that I have is worthless to me. That's Haman. This is what Hashem tells tells Adam and Chava. I place you in Gan Eden. And what did I tell you in Gan Eden? I told you that you could eat from every single tree, save one. I said I'm giving you from the trees wonderful fruit. What does the Pasik say? The Pasik says, um, Hashem produced all kinds of wondrous fruit, every tree that's pleasant to look at and good to eat. And what does he tell Adam and You could eat from all of them. And eat from all of them. Enjoy yourself. One tree that's bad for you, stay away from. One tree. So Hashem says, even that one tree, you couldn't hold yourself back from. You had everything. But you didn't have that one tree. And that one tree, the Nochosh built up in the eyes of the of Chavo and Odom and said, what do you mean? You're not going to have that? You have nothing. If you can't have that tree, then you have nothing else. It was desirable. It was something to lust after. And the lust builds and builds and builds and becomes greater and greater till it turns into an overwhelming obsession. And at that point, no other tree will help. And everything else that you have in Gan Eden, you could be sitting in Gan Eden. But if the one tree, that one object of desire that you badly want, if you can't have that, if that need, that, that's not a need, but now is developed by your Yates of Horror and it tells you you must have that, and you can't have that, then everything else that you have is worthless by you. That's what the Yetzirah does. The Yetzirah is capable of taking a person that's in Gan Eden. It's capable of taking a Homon, who is the most powerful person in the empire, the richest and most powerful and has everything going for him. And the Yetzirah is able to tell him that if you don't have that one little thing that you really desire, you can't have that that you have nothing and nothing else is worth it and drive yourself you become a driven person you become driven to the point of destruction and that was Homan's downfall Homan's downfall was that this object of this obsession he was driven to destroy Mordechai at all costs he wasn't happy with what he had he had everything and he could have been happy with it and everything would have been good for him but the one thing that he didn't have he was driven to the point of destruction where he brings himself down, and that was his fall. This is what the Yetzer Horror was. This is the Nochosh HaKadmoni that, that went to Chava and said, you're in Gan Eden, but if you don't have the one tree that you can't have, then you have nothing. And being driven by this desire, by this obsession, was the downfall of man. You had to eat from that last tree that's your downfall. And then that Yetzer Horror, that Nochosh HaKadmoni, became internalized 
It became part of man. It became part of Odom and Chava. And it became part of their children. And it came out in Esav. Esav is Edom. Harseir. External quality. Superficiality. Harseir. Edom. How Edom and Hodom Hodom Superficial to the point of where color matters and nothing else matters. Where only the most superficial, meaningless things matter. And things of true content don't matter. That was Esau, that's Edom, that's Harseir, that's the Yetzir Hora. And that was Homon, that was Amolek, pure, unadulterated evil. And that's Homon. This is how the Yetzir Hora can be epitomized as being the as being pure, unadulterated evil, where it's able to be the Sor Shabi'isa. What is Sor Shabi'isa, as we said before? It's fluff. It's nothing. It's when something has absolutely no true content, no nutritional value. Like the color of an object has no nutritional value, but it looks good. Sor Shabi'isa. It has no flavor, it has no nutrition, but it makes it look good and it makes you desire it, it makes you lust after it. It's this big fluffy buildup. That's what the Yetzirah is and that's part of man. That's Edom. That's the Golis Edom that we're living in where where a person will take the cereal box that's discarded and that becomes the Iker. Where Madison Avenue develops new and new needs and new things to cause people to lust after. Where if you don't have this kind of, of towels cotton with this kind of a logo then you're lacking everything and after you have that then they tell you that you need something else and they develop more and more things that are non-essential needs they tell you their needs and then you make you lust after it but they're non-essential you don't need them they're not good for you it's raw it's not tov it's bad it's not good but you think it's good and you lust after it because it becomes it becomes it becomes built up into this great overwhelming desire and obsession, this Har Gvoa. That's what the Yetzir Har is, this Har Gvoa, this great gigantic mountain. But it doesn't have any true essential value to itself. And, and, and it has no intrinsic value. And that's what the Yetzir Har tries doing. That's what it makes you lust after new things that we never would have thought of before. And it tells you that if you don't have those things that you're lusting after now, you have nothing. And that's what we have to fight. Because ultimately, after we, we, after we, we give in to our Yetzirah, we see that the whole thing was a mistake. The whole thing was a bluff. The whole thing was a fluff. As the woman says, it says, What does she answer Hashem why she did it? He sa- she says, The snake convinced me, talked me into it. Right? What she's saying over there is that you know, I made a, you know, the, the, the snake talked me into it. Targum Unkelis translates the words Hishiyani as, as Atayani, that, that he fooled me. Because that's what the Yetzirah is. The Nochosh fools you. You thought it was something, but it's not. What you thought it to be, it wasn't. You thought it was going to be great. It's going to feel great. It's going to be great. It's going to do good things for you. But after you get there, after you've done it, you feel, oh, you feel terrible. It's no longer an ah, it's an oi. It no longer feels good. You think that food's going to give it to you and it's going to make you feel great, but afterwards you feel miserable, you feel terrible for it. I was fooled. The nochosh made me think that if I don't have this tree, who knows what I'm going to be missing. And if I have it, I'll have everything. Now that I ate from it, I see I have nothing. He fooled me. 
That's what it is. The eight Sahara fools you. And that's goals Edom that we're living in today even more so than at any other time. What the person has to work on is to realize that what the eight Sahara is 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 something which which builds itself up into something that isn't really there. It's a non-existent ghost that we're chasing after. We're chasing after the ghost, but we're not chasing after something that's really there and we'll never get to it. So therefore we can understand what the Yetzirah was before Adam ate, when it was a true equivalent Yetzirah to the pleasure. Now it became built up into something false. That's what happened after the Yetzirah. We can also understand the other question, namely as to now that Adam and Chava were naked because they had no mitzvahs and they felt embarrassed, we already gave several explanations of what this nakedness was. Namely, either that their bodies now became their essence and therefore their bodies were naked, or as we said before that, because whereas until now their, their Yetzir Hori and, and all of their their desires were on a corresponding level to the actual pleasure they were now no longer did they did it fit into its true pleasure and they felt embarrassed about it whereas we gave the example from the animals where the animals have their desire corresponding to their needs human beings have a desire that does not correspond to their needs and therefore we feel this need to clothe ourselves but we also said from Rashi that they were naked from mitzvahs because the one mitzvah that they were given now becomes they lost that mitzvah, so they're naked from mitzvahs, like we said from the example of David HaMelech in the, in the bathhouse. So the question was, but did they not have the mitzvah of Puravul? And the answer is yes, they had Puravul, but that's the point. Whereas until now, Puravul was a mitzvah, and they were able to perform the mitzvah and utilize their Yetzir horror and utilize their desires and their biological urges to fulfill the mitzvah, now it became built up to the point of where even Puravu was no longer a mitzvah that's performed for the sake of the mitzvah. It's performed now for the sake of pleasure. And that's part of the embarrassment. Part of the embarrassment is that the mitzvah that they did have, that they're willing to perform, now is no longer performed as a mitzvah. It's now performed as an act of pure desire and lust where it's not done for the purpose of mitzvah. There's a medrash that says that even Dovna Melach recognizes imi. I was born through sin, meaning that my father and mother, the act of having a child, comes about with an element of sin. It doesn't come about from pure motivation. Till now, Adam and Chava were able to do the mitzvah purvu with pure intent, and they were doing it as a need, and 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 they had a yitzhar corresponding to the need. Now already it became something else. It became something dirty, something lower. And therefore, when they lost the midst of the Eitz Hadas, they also lost the midst of Puravu. And now they were truly naked because now the one mitzvah that they did have, they no longer really had it. It was already mixed up with ulterior motives. It was mixed up with non-mitzvah um, intentions as well. And therefore, they were truly naked. Lost Lava, when Mashiach comes, we're going to go back to the Madrega of where we will realize that the pleasures of Olam Hazah were given for a purpose and we'll be able to utilize them properly. But until that point, the one thing that we have to fight is 
This Yetzer Horror, and the way to find it is by realizing what the Yetzer Horror is. That the Yetzer Horror is Sheker, the Yetzer Horror is false. It's a build-up of something which isn't really there. It's only chasing the ghost that you can never get at. And if a person realizes this, half the battle is already won. What's interesting to note is an episode that occurred in the end of Noah's life. After he comes out of the Ark, he plants a vineyard. The Pesach says, Vayishkor, he got drunk, and he became naked. At that point, the two brothers, Shem and Yofes, they place a garment over their, over their shoulders, and they walk in backwards, they cover up the nakedness of their father, when Noah awakens, he says, Baruch Hashem al-Kesheim, v'hichnan eved lomo. And he blesses them. Rashi points out over there that shame, as a result of this, as a result of this incident, deserved the bracha, and that's why he got a special mitzvah, l'kach zochu bonov, l'tal shel tzitzis. The mitzvah of tzitzis came about as a result of the schus of this particular incident. That's why the Jewish people got the mitzvah of tzitzis. We've explained that the mitzvah of tzitzis and talus represents, in a sense, a somewhat of a rect- rectifying of the original sin. Whereas the original sin brought the Yetzirah into a person and as a result made him feel his nakedness and made him feel his, his physical animal qualities and therefore, as a result of that, he felt shame and felt the need to cover it up. The mitzvah of tzitzis represents a spiritual awakening, so to speak, or a reminder of the spiritual mission of man, where we place upon ourselves not a cloak of shame to cover up our animal nakedness, but a spiritual garment to remind us of our original state of our pristine, pure state before the sin. One can now see the connection. In both cases, there was a covering up of the nakedness. In Odomar Rishon's case, he covered up his nakedness with a garment, but that was an act of shame that came about from a defiance of the will of Hashem. He violated one of the mitzvahs, the only mitzvah that Hashem gave him, and as an act of shame, he covered up his nakedness. There the covering up was a degrading thing for him because it highlighted an act of shame on his part. So the covering up was something which he was embarrassed from. On the other hand, in the case of shame, the covering up of the erva of his father, the covering up of the nakedness of Noah, was a spiritual act. It was a mitzvah. He was doing a good deed with that. He was showing a sense of shame, of spirituality, that man, in his lower animal state, requires this. And as a result of that, here the clothing of the nakedness was a good act, was an act of elevation, of spiritual elevation. As a result of this, the Jewish people merited the mitzvah of tzitzis, which represents a cloaking a spiritual cloaking of our bodies and a reminder of the Torah. We know that tzitzis represents a, a reminder 
of all the mitzvahs of the Torah. And what is the Torah if not the, the guiding light to show us back to our original state, to bring us back to our, our pure and pristine state before the sin? Tzitzis is a reminder of the whole mitzvah of the Torah, of all the mitzvahs, because, spirit, because tzitzis cloaks us and clothes us in the spiritual light of the mitzvahs. And therefore, from this act of the covering up of the nakedness, which was a worthy act, we merited the mitzvah of tzitzis, which again is a, cloth- is a clothing of a spiritual kind. With this, we can understand also the incident in the Gemara that the Gemara Menachos brings down about um, the story of one of the Talmidim of, of Rebchia, who who decided to go to a far distant land to a uh, to visit a very high class prostitute who was very expensive and he had to make appointments months in advance and he traveled for many months to get there and when he arrived and he spent uh, a vast sum of money for it he came in and he found that there were rows and rows of silver and gold beds piled one on top of the other till he finally reached the zona Upon reaching the highest rung, his tzitzis wiped across his face, and it sort of like woke him up. At that point, he fell down from all seven levels of the beds to the ground. At which point, the zona came down, the prostitute came over to him and asked him, did he find anything wrong with her? To which he said that, there's nothing wrong with her, it's just that the mitzvah of tzitzis reminded him of who he was, and therefore, he's going to leave. And he gave up his, um, his desire for her, and he went back to learn. This so impressed the, the, this particular prostitute that she sold all of her worldly goods. She traveled to Eretz Yisrael to inquire to the, the school of this, um, this sage. And thereupon she converted, and they got married. To which Rebchia said, you see how the mitzvah of tzitzis brings reward in this world as well, that whereas he wanted to do a forbidden act, now she's gonna, he, he's married to her, and what was previously forbidden is now permissible. Again, we see from this story how, the, how Tzitzis has the capacity to cover up the nakedness of the original sin, whereas the original sin was, was this desire, this, these, these animal desires that came within a person, these uncontrollable animal desires. And as a result of that, our nakedness is something to be ashamed of, that we have to cover up. Tzitzis represents a going back. It represents a return to our original state. It's a spiritual garment that brings us back to our original state of self-control of our animal desires. And therefore, Tzitzis is precisely that mitzvah which caused this particular individual to remind himself and to recall who he was and what he was and how Tzitzis represents the entirety of the Torah, the entirety of our spiritual mission and how the spirit and the soul should control the body and the physical and the animal parts of man. And the purpose of Torah is to bring us back to this equilibrium that we originally had where there is a harmony between the physical and the spiritual and both could become elevated so that by following the Torah and fulfilling the deeper meaning of tzitzis, one is able to place back into equilibrium these two contrasting elements of the human being, the physical as well as the spiritual. Once everything is back in harmony, 
and we control ourselves fully the way we were supposed to, then there's no longer a conflict between the physical and the spiritual.